listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Turn with me in our Father's Word to Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Today I want to talk about four things you should never assume. Four things you should never assume. Now when I say never, I mean never. Here in verse 37, as we continue in our Father's Word through the Gospel of Luke, it says on the next day, which day? This is the day after the transfiguration. Now, in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, the word transfiguration is used when Jesus went up on the high mountain and his appearance changed. His face changed. His clothes were whiter than any bleach could bleach them. He was transfigured. Interestingly enough, in Romans chapter 12, when it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, I wish they would have done what's in the original language. The word that's used is actually transfigured. I should close in prayer right there. That's a takeaway. The word that is used should, should have been in the original language if we would have carried it over. Well, we would have looked at it and said, transfigured. What does that mean? But it would have been a teachable opportunity. See, the idea is that you would be transfigured by the renewing of your mind. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you can look at that for yourself later on. The idea is that everything about you becomes unrecognizable, humanly speaking, that you look different, you act different, you think different. Just like Jesus' appearance was transfigured, it was transformed. They got to see Jesus as he really was. Now, some have speculated that perhaps the time of the transfiguration was especially significant. I grew up not too far from here in New Jersey on a 26-acre farmette. And what I used to do in the summer nights was significant. It's hard to imagine a summer night now in January, isn't it? But on a summer night, I used to take one of my mother's mason jars. She used to can peaches and pears. Some of you do that. She used to pickle things, sometimes green tomatoes, sometimes pickles. Well, I can almost smell the pickle juice in one of those dried mason jars. You know, sometimes the fermentation lingers, and I can almost smell that. I used to take a nail and punch holes in the top of that mason jar lid, and I used to go out on that hot summer evening, and I would act upon these sparkling things that would be fluttering all around the air. As a little boy, I'd get so excited. Sometimes there were more than others. I'd go out and I'd catch these fireflies and I would throw them into that mason jar, cram as many of them in there as I could, have that lid tightly screwed on. You've got to have holes in it. I learned the hard way because they have to breathe. And sometimes as a boy, I'd even crush one or two of those lightning bugs, those fireflies, and the reflective, the luminescence of that thing. I'd put it on my face like war paint. I'd have such a fun time in the evening when the fireflies would light up the sky, you know, in a similar way. Some have postulated that maybe the transfiguration of Jesus occurred in the evening, which would add to the significance of the splendor of what the disciples, the apostles, James and Peter and John would have seen when Jesus' appearance changed. 
was after that. On the next day, when Jesus comes down in verse 37, comes down off of that mountain with Peter, James, and John and a great crowd. This is not talking about the moral quality of the crowd, that these are super awesome people. It's talking about the size of the crowd. This is the ping-ponging that we see, where Jesus has spent time with Peter, James, and John. Perhaps they've spent the whole night on the mountain. We don't know, but they've spent time on the mountain. Now they've come down. Jesus is reunited with the rest of the 12 apostles and the significantly sized crowd. They're after Jesus. And what happens in verse 38 is a man from the crowd cried out and says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, what I'd like to do today is something we don't always get the opportunity to do because of the sake of time. I'd like us to look at Mark's gospel in chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. The synoptic gospels, the parallel gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They talk about many of the same events from different angles, bring up different nuances so that when we read all of them side by side, we're able to get a picture, a fuller picture than just reading one. And Mark does a great job of this. For the sake of time, we're not going to go into Matthew chapter 17, but that's a parallel account here. Now, John's gospel, being a son of thunder, wouldn't you know that his doesn't parallel Matthew, Mark, and Luke? He goes into other things. For example, the Last Supper is not covered in John's gospel, but the foot washing is. The cup and the bread, it's assumed that the reader understands that that took place. But John goes in 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 John chapter 13 and he covers the foot washing of Jesus because he was enamored with the fact that the Son of Man would stoop down and wash as a servant the stinky smelling feet of mere mortals. Well, Matthew chapter 9, a parallel passage here, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, parallel passage, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, we read this, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. See, this brings into a picture something that Luke didn't go into, but Mark does. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it it throws him to the ground, throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? You're the frustration of Jesus. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him... Immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Not because Jesus didn't know, but because Jesus was providing a teachable opportunity for everybody. This is something that's a teachable opportunity for all of us. This boy had a demonic issue from the time he was very young. And it harassed him all of his life, from childhood, he says. Verse 22, It has often cast him into fire and into water. The word that's used there is actually plural, waters, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That's going to become significant in a moment as we go through this section. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, interesting, in Matthew chapter 17, the writer there provides a little bit of a different nuance when the disciples come to Jesus and say, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus says, because of your little faith. 
So which is it? Is it a lack of faith or is it a lack of prayer? Actually, it's both. It's a lack of the prayer of faith. Jesus provides them with a teachable moment. You see the disciples getting around Jesus in that quiet time, that one-on-one intimate setting and asking Jesus why, and Jesus teaches them. Life is school. They were in the classroom of life seeing Jesus interact with people, and then they did the million-dollar thing that you should be doing with Jesus, asking Jesus to make sense of your life. Jesus will make sense of your life. He'll give you insight. This is what a disciple does, goes to Jesus and asks Jesus for insight. Now, it's interesting, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 15. Matthew provides some insight here that's significant as the writers, uh, translators of the English Standard Version have provided. Lord, have mercy on my son, parallel section, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, interesting, The word that really was translated as epileptic by the English Standard Version translators, even though I like the English Standard Version, it's a good translation, some people are now foaming at the mouth that all I'm saying is that it's good. Some people like to worship a particular translation of the Bible, and woe be to anybody who says it's not greater than good. The original word that could have been translated here could have been literally moonstruck. Would you please help my son? He's moonstruck. This does not mean he was a fan of Cher. (laughs) Moonstruck, meaning that the activity that this boy was suffering seemed to be connected to the ebb and the flow of the moon, the, the lunar cycle which still you see in especially prominent ways in emergency rooms when there's a full moon in the United States and other parts of the world. You see that with the lunar cycle, there is an increase in crimes, in violent crimes, and all types of things. This boy had symptoms, foaming at the mouth, writhing, convulsing on the ground, being thrown into fire, being thrown into the waters multiple times as an attempt to destroy him. And what we have to understand here is very significant. Of all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only one is a doctor. It's not Matthew. It's not Mark. And it's not John. It's Luke. And what does Luke do in his presentation of this story? He doesn't mention a word that could be confused with epilepsy. He doesn't even mention it. Why? Because Luke helps us understand the first thing that you and I should never assume. Do not assume that a physical problem is merely and only a physical problem. Do not assume that a physical problem is merely and only a physical problem. In fact, do not assume that all physical problems, all physical difficulties are primarily physical difficulties. Luke helps us understand that this boy's problem, the father's problem being the father of this boy, this boy's problem was fundamentally, primarily, spiritually with physical symptoms. Now, in our rationalistic Western world in which you and I live, maybe you're listening by podcast in the United States or another part of the world, maybe it's a third world part of the the world, maybe it's a part where rationalism does not reign. You might be scratching your head and trying to understand how we think here in the United States, how we think here in the Western world where rationalism reigns. It's called rationalism because we want things to make sense. It needs to be rational. It needs to be sensible. You need to be able to prove what you're saying. In our Western world, we see the physical world as being primary, and we have great difficulty connecting the spiritual world, the unseen world that is manifest through the seen physical world. But in third world countries, they primarily see the spiritual world, sometimes to great fault. They see the activity of evil spirits, and they see power encounters between God, the living and true God, and evil spirits as the primary world, and they look at the physical world as a reflection of the spiritual world. Oh, how we in developed countries could learn from those in undeveloped countries. 
Some of us are very weak spiritually in our discernment and our ability to see the spiritual reality behind the natural world that we live in day after day. What Luke is helping us understand here with great intentionality is that you are to never assume that a physical problem is merely a physical problem. Now, you might be experiencing financial difficulties, but your real problem is not a financial difficulty. It's a spiritual problem that's being manifest in your money. For example, sometimes you might be robbing from God what belongs to him, and you might not be able to make ends meet. It's not because you don't have enough money. It's because you're not spending your money wisely, and therefore, you're not seeing God bless you the way you otherwise would be blessed because your priorities are out of place. See, money is not an isolated issue. You, your use of money, the way you use money, is a, watch this, direct reflection of your spiritual maturity. And part of what might be happening in your world financially could be a result of spiritual immaturity, not using God's money that he has entrusted to you as a steward to use that for building up his kingdom. You've misused that. You've not been able to make a distinction between your wants and your needs. And so you're spending God's money in ways that don't glorify him. And when it comes to having your needs met when it comes to balancing your checkbook, when it comes to at the end of the month or the beginning of the month or mid-month, whenever your pay period might be, you find yourself struggling primarily because it's not a financial problem that you have. It is a spiritual problem manifest in your finances. The same could be true relationally. You know, years ago, I used to defer to people. I used to encounter people in ministry, in life, And every once in a while, sometimes more than once in a while, you encounter somebody who has a track record of train wreck after train wreck relationally in their life. They just have very poor people skills, can't get along with people, and their reputation is that they don't know how to interact with other people. They have broken relationships. They're known for arguing. They're known for disagreeing. They're known for being passive-aggressive. They're known for being aggressive. Fill in the blank. It can be any number of things. And I used to defer to these people thinking that if I just love them enough and I, you know, submit myself to them and let them have their way, they will reciprocate. And you know what I learned? You know what I learned. I learned that that's often not the case. Because those things of relational train wrecks and difficulties and interpersonal hardship are a reflection of spiritual immaturity. Because a person who's really mature with God is mature with people. In fact, our ability to love God is directly correlated and reflected by our treatment of people. And so I learned that there's a direct correlation between how somebody is acting relationally and their spiritual maturity. You see, I don't know what's happening in your life. I don't know. As the pastor of a large church, I often see people's church face by default. I'm constantly reminding the elders, the deacons, the staff, what the Bible says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. I only see your church face. I don't know how you're treating your spouse, how you're treating your children, what your reputation is in your neighborhood. It's a sense in which I can't get the objective understanding of what that looks like because you're going to put on your church face. We just do it by default. There are people who come to church and they look like godly people. They smile, they look happy, and then they get in the car and then they go home and they speak harshly and cruelly to their children. They speak harshly and cruelly to their parents. They're abusive and you'd never know it. It's a dysfunctional relationship and all they're presenting among the body of Christ with other believers is their church face. Have I said a new teaching here today? Is there anything profound about what I'm saying? Oh, it's just true. 
You must never assume that what's happening in the physical world is just something that's happening in the physical world. There can be a spiritual dimension behind it. This physical world can be a symptom. What's happening in the physical world can be a symptom of what's really happening in the spiritual world. A number of years ago when I was on my first trip to the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific, northeast of Australia, east of Papua New Guinea, I was there doing ministry, and we went to this one village in the remote place. It was so remote that they had this oxygen tank that they were beating on for the meeting to commence. They were beating on this oxygen tank. If you've been to a third world country, you'll see that they'll pick up something that resonates, that makes a lot of sound. They'll just beat on it like a bell, because they don't have a real bell. And they beat on this thing, and then people can hear this, and they know that there's a special gathering. Well, they did this. And over the course of the next three hours, people were gathering to meet, about 400 of them, under this pole barn-like structure with this zinc roof, this metal roof. And shortly after they began to rang their version of the bell, this oxygen tank, the skies grew dark. And this storm developed like I have never seen before. I've been in like 21, 22 countries. I lost track. A storm like I have never seen anywhere else in my life. This storm came up. And when the meeting began and the people were gathered, the generator was totally out. And the worship leader did something that you should never do here in the United States of America because you'd be laughed off the platform. He stood in front of the people with a nylon string guitar, missing strings, a classical guitar, unplugged, missing strings, as 400 people were gathered and he tried to lead the worship for 40, 45 minutes with no generator and this torrential downpour on this zinc roof where the rain was so loud and the thunder so loud at times, you had to yell at the person next to you. That's how loud it was. And this worship leader faithfully trying to move forward. 40, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, it went on and on. And the atmosphere was as flat as a pancake. Flat as a pancake. Listen, you might like IHOP. You might like warmed up blueberry syrup or maple syrup. You might like real butter. You might like promise. You might like whatever it is you like. Pancakes are a great thing when you go to IHOP, but they're not good when you're in church. God's intention, his desire is that when his people gather... God inhabits the praises of his people and his people are caught up in him, worshiping him, enjoying him, enjoying the presence of God, lifting up their eyes and their hearts to him. That is never supposed to be a flat as a pancake experience. And that's what it was like. And so me, being a Westerner, being reconnected or learning about the reality of the spiritual dimension behind the natural, I realized that since that's not God's desire... There was a spiritual dimension causing the flatness. Listen, same thing can happen in the United States of America. We just march forward, submitting to the God of the clock. We have to get going. Get going for what? Didn't we come for God? Well, we're running out of time. Time for what? Don't we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, here it comes. I gotta get going. Gotta get moving. Don't have time for what? Don't have time for God to move? That's what you're hungry for in the deepest part of who you are, for God to really move in your life, for God to really move in your marriage, for God to really move among a group of people. And guess what? It's happening. It's happening. And I began to pray there in the Solomon Islands, sitting on this bench, knowing that it's not God's will for a worship setting to be as flat as a pancake. And I was saying, Lord, would you please reveal what is happening? And as I was praying with this torrential downpour, generator, dead, I felt something on my right shoulder and I reacted by swinging my arm arm up and hitting my Australian brother in the face. (laughs) Because I expected God to do something that would reveal what it is that was opposing us. And He held his face as he looked at me and said, Mike, we need to pray that God would show us what it is that's opposing him. I said, that's what I'm praying. He said, good, keep praying. 
goes and sits down. I continue to pray for 10 minutes as the worship leader launches, continues to launch, and the people are flat and distracted. And it's loud. And then all of a sudden, I hear a commotion to my right of these children who are talking. And I look over, and I see them pointing to my left. And as I followed their fingers to my left-hand side, there, about 12 feet away, on the side of this pole barn structure was a serpent that had raised its head and was looking out at the congregation with its tongue going in and out as it defiantly looked to the left and to the right, scoping out as if to take an inventory of the whole congregation. And I said, that's what's opposing this meeting, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I got up and I pointed at that snake, rationalist that I was. See, I'm a recovering rationalist and if you read the Bible, you better be too. And I pointed at that snake and I said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. And my Australian friend came up and he was pointing at that snake and saying, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Only a Solomon Islander had the spiritual maturity to come up between us and grab that snake by the throat and step outside the pole barn structure. And I tell you what, God is my witness. The moment he stepped out of that pole barn structure, the rain instantaneously stopped. The generator turned on and the lights were on and the people erupted in worship. Do you think that was a coincidence? So the brother preached the message that by exegetical intention, if you were to listen to the message, you would say, that was okay. But there, the people were hungry not for a mere mortal to teach the word of God. They were hungry to hear from God. Any one of God's scriptures is a feast in a land of famine. And so we had this worship service that was amazing as we turned the corner. The people were fed and taught from the word of God. People responded coming forward. And then afterward, as we were evaluating and praying back to the Lord after the whole meeting was over, you know what we found out? During the exact time for that whole 45, 50, 60 minutes and more when the worship leader was trying to lead the people in worship and the whole atmosphere was as flat as a pancake, the leaders of the church were arguing. They were disunified. And at the very moment when the serpent appeared and it was dealt with is when they humbled themselves and repented and confessed their differences. And when that happened and the serpent was dealt with, the people erupted in worship. See, our rationalistic mind would say, oh, it's just a coincidence. Do not ever assume that what is happening in the physical is just something physical. There can be. There are situations where the physical world is a reflection of the real world, the spiritual world. And that can be true in the area of your relationships with people. It can be true in the area of your finances. It can be true in the area of health. Not all physical problems are merely physical problems. It's good to go to a doctor. Yes, it is. It's also good to go to the great physician. His name is Jesus. And to make sure that you don't assume something that could keep you in bondage or keep somebody else in bondage for who knows how long, that it's just a merely physical condition. It's just merely a financial problem. It's just merely a relational issue. No, it might primarily be a spiritual issue. And it's significant that Luke the physician who writes this gospel doesn't attribute it to anything else apart from an evil spirit. There's a progression here. There's a spirit, then he's called a demon. It's an unclean spirit. That's what a demon is. And that's what's been harassing this person. Don't you ever assume that something that you see in the mere physical realm is just a physical issue. There can be spiritual dimensions, spiritual truth, spiritual cause, spiritual influence behind what you're experiencing in the natural. Secondly, look at here. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 9, verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Hmm. 
Jesus comes down off the mountain with Peter, James, and John. The others are there below the mountain trying to deal with this issue, doing the best that they can, exerting their energy. And what do we learn from this? We learn that we are to never assume, never assume that doing the work of God will go without opposition. Never assume that God's work is smooth sailing. In fact, if you're not experiencing opposition and difficulty and hardship, in your journey of doing the will of God, doing the work of God, serving God, if you're not experiencing difficulty and hardship, you probably aren't doing the will and the work of God. There are opposing forces to those who are trying to advance God's work. And if you're one of them, if you're one of the people who's trying to oppose the work of the enemy, if you're one of God's people who is trying to advance the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of if you'll have opposition, it's a matter of when and how, what kind of opposition you'll have. Notice in Mark chapter 9, the scribes are arguing with the disciples. This is the human dimension. The scribes, those who are teachers of the law, those who would write the translations of the Old Testament, the Torah, They're the ones arguing with those, the disciples who were following Jesus. Why weren't the scribes up on the mountain with Jesus? Because they're dabblers. Even though they had the title and the position of influence, even though they were supposed to be the spiritual leaders, they ended up being the spiritual opponents to the work of God. You will encounter opposition from mere mortals who think that they have the authority from God when they really don't, and you will have opposition from demonic forces. Do not assume that you can do God's work without opposition. If you're going to do God's work, you will be opposed, and you will be opposed significantly. The greater your determination to do the will and the work of God, the greater threat you pose to the enemy in his kingdom, the more he will try to throw everything at you, including the kitchen sink. You will experience financial difficulty. You will experience interpersonal difficulty. You will experience physical illness and difficulties and attacks. You will experience every known opposition to man all designed to get you to take your foot off the gas. Would you stop taking this Jesus stuff so seriously? Would you stop being so committed to the work of God? Hmm. You know, you read the book of Job, and you see that the enemy's strategy was, you know, you let me strike his family, then he'll curse you. You let me strike his health, and then he'll curse you. But Job didn't give in. Your enemy, my enemy, the devil, if you're doing the will of God, will stop at nothing to try to rob you of the impact that you would have for the glory of God, of the joy that you would have in serving God, of the legacy that you would have. He will stop at nothing. Do not Assume that you can do the work of God without being opposed. Thirdly, you know, Mark brings it up. Matthew brings it up. Matthew brings a little bit of a different nuance here. The disciples in Mark's gospel come to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And look at the last verse of Mark's gospel. Jesus gives the answer. Jesus gives the answer here. The last verse, verse 29 of Mark 9, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In Matthew's gospel, in verse 20 of Matthew 17, Jesus says, it is because of your little faith. Do not assume that you can do the work of God without faith. You can't do the work of God without faith. In fact, if you are going to do a great work for God, if you're going to do any work for God, is great. 
any work for God is great. Do not confuse a public platform with greatness. There are many people who will have great rewards, greater than many people who have a public platform. We've never heard of them, never seen them, but they will have great rewards. They did not confuse publicity with greatness for God. Nobody may ever hear your name. It's irrelevant. God has put you in a position, put you in a place where you can have great influence for him, provided you operate by faith. Do not assume that you can do God's work apart from faith. You must have faith. There are certain things in your life that will not change without faith in God. Now you might say, I believe that. I know that faith is important. The question is, how do I develop my faith? I'm glad you asked that. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, look with me in our Father's word. Romans 10, 17, here's how faith is developed. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, when you find yourself in a faith crisis, where you're struggling with what you believe, you're not sure what you believe, you wish you could believe more, I have found this to be true, and I bet you have too. There's a direct correlation between my ability to exercise my spiritual muscles, my faith walk, and my being in or out of the Word of God. Now, some of you are smiling when I say that because you can identify. You want to build up your faith? You want to be able to do great work for God, minister for God, even if you're unseen, that's a good thing. You've got to be in the word of God so that the God of his word builds up your faith. It's not enough just to hear on a Sunday morning. It's not enough to come to a midweek gathering and hear somebody else teach and preach from the word of God. You've got to have a steady diet of God's word, the Bible. And you know what will happen? Your faith will be built up in proportion to the word of God. How do I know that? Because Romans 10, 17 says it. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. As you're reading the word of God, you will find that you're able to believe God for breakthroughs in areas of your life. God is able to do things in your life because of your faith. God has given us such a book that man couldn't write if he would and wouldn't write if he could, the Bible. D.L. Moody said it well when he said, this book, speaking of the Bible, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. You want to build up your faith? You've got to be a man, woman, boy, or girl who prioritizes the word of God. Do not assume that you can do a great work for God. Do not assume that you can do any work for God apart from faith. Colossians 3.16. Look with me at Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what happens as a result of that? This is a cause and effect thing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How's that going to happen if you're not in the word of God, the Bible? Look at the overflow, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. The teaching and the admonishing is an overflow of being in God's word. The ability to give divine wisdom, an overflow of being in God's word. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is up with that? I don't sing, you might say. I'll sing in the shower. I sing when nobody else is around to hear me. Listen, you get into the word of God, God's word gets into you, your faith begins to be built up, and you will begin to do things you will not do in the flesh. You will be transfigured. You will sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness into your heart, coming out of your heart. You will do what you otherwise would not do. You'll be what you otherwise would not be. That is the whole point of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. As you let the word of God dwell in you richly, God will, out of the overflow, minister to other people around you. You become a kingdom shaper. You begin somebody who is a, a factor of influence in your workplace, a factor of transformation in your marriage, a factor of transformation in your church. 
Do not assume that you can do the work of God apart from faith. It's interesting, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 24, what the father of this demonized boy says. It's a great prayer to adopt for yourself. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. You know anybody who's in that situation? Lord, I believe up to a certain point. Lord, I believe in these certain areas, but this area I'm having a hard time believing you in. This man cried out to the Lord, and it's a good exemplary prayer for you and for me. I believe, but not as much as I should. In all the areas I could, I believe, help me in my unbelief. It's a great prayer to pray for yourself, a great thing in humility to understand that you're in process. You don't understand all of the things that you one day will. You're on a journey. That's a good thing. And you can cry out to the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ, as you let the word of God dwell in you richly, and he will perfect your faith. As you're spending time in the Word of God, you begin to realize that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, you begin to realize that as I prioritize the Word of God, God builds my faith up in the area that I previously could not believe God in, I now can believe in. in. Do not assume that every physical situation, every physical manifestation is merely and only physical. There can be a spiritual dimension behind it. Secondly, do not assume that you can do the work of God without opposition and difficulty. Thirdly, do not assume that you can do a significant work of God without faith. And fourth, my final point, do not assume you can do the work of God without prayer. Ain't gonna happen. There are some things in your life that will never change until you pray. There are some things in your family that will never change until you pray. There are some things in the life of a church and a ministry that will never happen. They will never change until God's people pray. This is the teaching in the scriptures of partnership. God, in his humility, patiently waits for his people to call out to him, to depend upon him. Prayer is where we demonstrate our dependence upon God. And if you're not a person of prayer, you are demonstrating independence from God. Jesus says it in the last verse, of Mark chapter 9, this one, this kind, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Was Jesus giving a new teaching to the disciples about prayer and casting out a demon? Or was it an old teaching that Jesus was walking in that his disciples should have known about? You'd like me to answer that, wouldn't you? Is this a new teaching that Jesus is presenting, the idea about prayer and demons having to submit to the name of God, or is this an old teaching that the disciples should have known? See, some of us should be much farther in our spiritual journey than we already are, like the Corinthians where Paul had to rebuke them and say, you're still drinking milk, you should be eating meat. Of course, Paul's not talking about 2% or 1% or organic. He's talking spiritually. Some of us know things that we should be doing in our lives, know how we should be operating before the Lord, but we're not. And Jesus seems to be exasperated because of the lack of faith, the lack of spiritual maturity in his disciples that they should have been operating in already. And it's a good reminder for you and for me that God's work must be done in God's power with dependence upon him. You cannot assume that you can do God's work without prayer. You can't. In fact, if you're going to do God's work individually, if your family is going to be a shining beacon of God's work, if a church or a ministry is going to be an outpost for the Spirit of God to move powerfully, you as an individual, your family, 
that church and that ministry must be characterized by prayers offered in faith. It's the unintentioned hypocrisy that we can gravitate toward and get into in ministry. I was convicted of this this past week as I was reading this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 9. See, what Luke does, he culminates the passage and says, all were astonished at the majesty of God in Luke 9, 43. That's what Luke is focusing on, that Jesus is moving. He's unlike any other teacher that's ever been on the face of the earth. And that because of what Jesus did, they were astonished at the majesty of God, not hung up on the demonic activity. Spiritual warfare is not what the devil's doing. Listen to this. Spiritual warfare is not about what the devil is doing. It's about what Jesus is doing. That's the focus of spiritual warfare. The majesty of God, the enemy is opposing it. Mere mortals are opposing it. People in positions of influence should be, should be spiritually mature are opposing it. Spiritual warfare can be boiled down to one word. It's an issue of glory, the glory of God. Here, Luke says majesty. That's what he's focusing on. I was reading this passage of Scripture and cross-referencing Mark chapter 9 and looking at Matthew chapter 17 and how easy it is for a church leader to get pulled away in all different directions so that the main thing is no longer the main thing. When you're in a church that's understaffed, that happens. I know that this doesn't happen in your family, right? I know this doesn't happen to you. It only happens to church leaders. No, it happens to everybody who's a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're not a dabbler and you're a disciple of Jesus, you will be tempted by the things that are happening in your life, the things that are happening in the world to be led astray from pure and sincere devotion to Christ. And you will make the assumption that you can do God's work without prayer. And so what I did as I was convicted in this, you know, being convicted of something is nothing until you act upon it. I contacted the person who takes care of our scheduling here at the church because I've learned a thing or two about making something and scheduling something so it doesn't conflict with something else we already have scheduled. I said, I need two dates in the near future. Give me some options, two dates in the near future where we can gather as a church body here on this campus and call out to God in prayer. And so I got a few dates. The first one is February 15th on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. right here in the multi-purpose room, in the atrium, and here in the auditorium. February 15th, beginning at 9 o'clock from 9 to 11, what are we going to do? We're going to call out to God and we're going to pray because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And a church that's not praying has no right to be called a church. If we expect to be a church of local, regional, national, international influence... If you expect that to happen, if you're hungry for that to happen, it's not going to happen until we pray, until we exercise faith. There are some things that will not happen until we pray. We can have great music, and we do. We can have great preaching, and it's so-so. We can have a beautiful building, and it's wonderful. None of that stuff will shake the enemy's territory the way prayer and the prayer of faith will. Are you with me? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're going to be a person of significant impact for the kingdom and the glory of God, you've got to be a man, woman, boy, or girl of faith. If we're going to be a church that has significant impact locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, we've got to be people of prayer. So February 15th, 9 o'clock in the morning, Saturday, you come, you bring your Bible, and you get ready to call out to God. And then the second opportunity is Friday, March 21st. Friday night, March 21st, from 7 to 9. Now, if God moves us beyond 9 o'clock, fantastic. Friday night, March 21st, beginning at 7 o'clock. And what are we going to do? We're going to call out to God. We have got to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is we've got to be people of faith. We've got to adjust our lives and our schedules. This is what a disciple does. I'm not interested in being a dabbler. Are you? 
disciples commit and surrender themselves to Jesus Christ, their whole life revolves around Jesus. And a real disciple understands, as the disciples were being taught in Jesus' day, that there are some things that will not change. There are some things that will never change until and unless God's people pray. And you may never know what will change in your life. You may never know what will change in your family. You may never know what would change in your business. You may never know what would change in this church. You may never know what will change in this nation until and unless God's people pray. The problems in this country are not primarily political. They're not primarily political. They're not financial. They're not even primarily moral problems. They are spiritual problems. And it is time for God's people to gather and to call out to God to keep the main thing, the the main thing, which is for the kingdom of God to advance. Don't make any mistake about it. Do not assume that what's happening in the physical is just the physical. There can be a spiritual dimension behind it. Secondly, do not assume that you can do the work of God without opposition. Thirdly, do not assume you can do the work of God without faith. Your faith must be built up if you're going to do the work of God and be a kingdom influencer. And fourth and final, do not expect, do not assume that you can do, that I can do, that we can do the work of God without prayer. God's work gets done through faith and through prayer. We're mighty men and women of God. I'm saying that with, from God's perspective. We're humble men and women of God, boys and girls, are adjusting their schedule to say, you know what, God, I want you to move, and I am giving you the room and the space to bring your kingdom the way you want it. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit couragematters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.